0: Over the past few weeks, an extraordinary event has been taking place across the eastern U.S. If you live there, you might be seeing it, and you're definitely hearing it. A group of periodical cicadas called Brood X has begun to emerge above ground in the largest emergence event since 2004.
1: For the next month or so, coursing male cicadas will fill the air with their loud buzzing in desperate search of a mate. But the chaos won't last for long. Most won't even survive to July.
0: The story of Brood X has piqued worldwide curiosity and it's difficult to wrap your head around the sheer scale of the event. How and why do billions of insects across such a huge part of the U.S. sync their emergence so perfectly?
1: With Dennis Walsh a few episodes back, we discussed the concept of agency, the idea that organisms play active roles in shaping the environments they experience. Today we talk with Dr. Mike Levin from Tufts University for
0: a second time
1: about organisms as agents with agendas.
0: Here's a way to think about what agency means. In Brood X, each cicada has an agenda. The males to chorus, the females to listen, and both to find a mate. While also avoiding the snakes and lizards and crows and hawks and possums and raccoons and all sorts of other, critters that love to feast on them. But Mike's idea of
1: agency goes beyond just surviving and reproducing. He applies agency to every level of life, from the entire Brood X emerging from underground every 17 years, to the cells within each insect, to even the mitochondria and the metabolic networks operating within those cells.
0: For Mike, agency is a hierarchically nested phenomenon. Agents at each level have agendas, which they carry out by perceiving the world and reacting to it. Agents at higher levels of organization depend on those at lower levels, but also embody new agendas and have new ways of attempting to carry them out.
1: In a recent article in Eon Magazine entitled Cognition All the Way Down, Mike and his co-author Dan Dennett claim that biology's next great leaps will result from scientists studying systems as agents with agendas. One,
2: one way that I think we get in trouble in, in this field, like in many other fields, is with a, uh, an implicit binarization of these terms. So, so people will often say, is this an agent? Is it not an agent? Does it have cognition? you know, does it have true cognition like me, or is it only as if cognition, you know, and people sometimes say to me, especially, let's say molecular biologists will sometimes say, look, you're, you're, you're talking as if this thing made decisions, whatever, but we, but, but that's just the metaphor, right? You, you don't really mean that, you know, I make decisions, this thing is just chemistry. And I think, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I think that's, that's a major mistake, that view. And I think it's, it's really important um, to, to get, to get from the, from the get-go that I think agency and cognition are a continuum, they're a spectrum.
0: Last season we talked with Mike about how spatial information can be encoded in electrical fields. Remarkably, electrical patterning can be inherited by some organisms, helping them to direct how they develop and how they regenerate body parts.
1: In this episode, we talk with Mike about cognition and multiple levels of biological organization, and how that gives organisms agency.
0: I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Thank you so much for coming on to the show for the second time, and congratulations of a sort for being our, our first return guest on Big Biology. Um, before we get into the details of the, of the article that's going to be the basis of the conversation, which was in E.ON last October, I believe, and you called it Cognition All the Way Down, uh, we wanted to ask, what's the history of the article, though? Was it something you were invited to write? Did you go to E.ON with the idea? Did you incubate the, these ideas over a long time, or is this in response to some specific event?
2: Well, um, you know, the, these ideas have, have been incubating for a really long time. I mean, obviously, Dan has been thinking about this for a really long time, and, and, and I have as well. And uh, it was just, to, to me, it was, it was an incredible um, opportunity. It actually started as a three-way conversation between uh, Raphael Usti, uh, Dan, and myself. And we met a couple of times and had lots of meetings about it and, and had lots of discussions about it. And in the end, we decided to split it into two pieces. So this is the piece by Dan and I. There's another piece that is currently making its way uh, through the system by Rafa and myself. Um, but it was it, it came out of these, this this kind of three way conversation that, that we had way back.
1: So so how did how did you end up sort of linking up with Dan Dennon on this? And you know what what was the the origin of your ideas and collaboration?
2: Well, uh, I mean I, I've known Dan's work uh, ever since I was a kid, basically reading uh, reading his books. Uh, very influential in the way that I think about things. Um, i had him then as a professor when i was a student at tufts uh taking his uh, philosophy of mind class you know uh back in those days uh i had him as a professor and i've, I've talked to him on and off about various ideas but this this was just uh the, the ideas kind of gelled together at one point a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and uh I, I i just found this this absolutely tremendous you know this this idea this this being able to to discuss these with with him and uh and being able to co-author something is—I I got
1: a, a huge kick out of it. I think mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. great. Were, were there major points of disagreement you guys had to work through to, to get to this article, or was it mostly on the same page?
2: Yeah, I think I think we're mostly on the same page. I mean, there are there are subtle things that I think we we probably disagree on. I think I I probably um, with at least with respect to some of the biology, I'm, I, I probably have a more extreme view on some of these things than uh, than he does, not and of course he he also uh, thinks about all kinds of things that I haven't even touched. You know, so issues of actual consciousness and so on, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I haven't even gotten into in any of the things that I've written. Um, but I, th- I think mostly we, we
0: tend to be on the same page. Neither of you are trained as evolutionary biologists, right? I know, I mean, Dan is a, a philosopher and you're a computer scientist, correct? What do you think that does for you do you have you has it ever been an impediment or, or do you mostly see it as sort of liberating in that you know you're not constrained by indoctrination of a sort yeah I think it's both I mean I'm certainly
2: never going to say that uh, more more knowledge wouldn't be better so uh, I, I'm sure you know uh, having a back having a bigger background in these things for myself uh, would be would be even more useful but I do think I two, two things first of all I think that uh, a lot of the problems that could have been solved with, with an ex, by experts in one thing, working deeply in one field. I think a lot of those problems are actually already solved, and what we have left are now the much, much more difficult problems that are at the at the intersection of fields, or in fact, in entirely new fields. And so, inevitably, we're going to see progress being made by people that are not classic experts in whatever it is. And, and I do think there's a liberating aspect to having been trained in a completely different field. So I like the way computer scientists think about things, and I do think that they uh, tend to bring in a perspective that's very useful in biology.
1: Well, let's let's jump into the article now. Um, I want to start just by reading something you wrote uh, early on in the article, that biology's next great horizon is to understand cells, tissues, and organisms as agents with agendas. Let's just kind of define this thing, agency. And I think it's, um, to me, both comprehensible and incomprehensible, and it's unusual enough to, to the sort of general scientific public that I think we need to unpack it. So, so what is agency? Uh, let's, let's start there.
2: Um, to, to, to me, and obviously this is a huge field and lots of people, lots of very smart people have had deep things to say about it, um, for, I, I take an engineering approach to this. And so for me, agency is a kind of center of gravity for things like decisions, preferences, memories, and, and in, in the more advanced implementation, sometimes things like blame and credit and, and other, you know, other things like that. It, um, agents, agents are things that can make mistakes right? Chemistry and physics doesn't make mistakes. It just sort of does what it does. But agents are, are and, I, and I think this is a point that Dan has made before, that, that agents are capable of making mistakes. And so there is a kind of a, a, a whole spectrum of different uh, levels of sophistication that different agents can, uh, can achieve. But they, to me, they are a kind of, um, uh, it's like, like everything else. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that helps us do science and it helps us to organize what we see in terms of complex systems and uh, another thing i would say about it is that it's sort of in the eye of the beholder so how much agency something has and whether something uh, to what extent something is an agent has a lot to do with who or what is observing that agent and trying to predict its behavior modify its behavior and so mm-hmm, on
1: mm-hmm. so so agents depend in part on cognition, right? So you guys use this term as do others. And as I understand it, that's about sensing and understanding local environments as a way and using that information to make decisions about how to act in those environments. Is, is that a reasonable way to describe cognition?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it is. And I think, I think the important thing to, to, to say right, right from the get-go is that one, one way that I think we get in trouble in, in this field, like in many other fields, is with a uh, an implicit binarization of these terms so so people will often say is this an agent is it not an agent does it have cognition you know does it have true cognition like me or is it only as if cognition you know and people Sometimes say to me, especially let's say molecular biologists will sometimes say, "Look, you're 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 talking as if this thing made decisions, whatever." But we, but but that's just the metaphor, right? You you don't really mean that. You know, I make decisions. This thing is just chemistry. And I think I think it's very important. Uh, I, I think that's that's a major mistake that view. And I think it's it's really important um, to to get to get from the from the get-go that. I think agency and cognition are a continuum or a spectrum. It doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense to me to ask the, a binary question of whether something is or is not an agent. The real question is how much and what kind of agency would you want to attribute to the system and what does it do for you?
1: Yeah, right, right. It, it seems like what you're describing for the microbiologist is a kind of, um, or the biochemist is a kind of teleophobia, right? So, so there's this sort of sense that there's something mystical about agency. You know, it has something about it that's distressing and and upsetting to our kind of Western point of view about science. So, so what do you say to skeptics like that?
2: Well, I think two things. I think um, it, it, it is I think pretty interesting that uh, the the um, the communities that are uh, in a certain sense the most materialist slash mechanist, right, the 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 the, the most reductionist types of folks who you know, are, are definitely not into uh, uh, kind of magic or, 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 um, or, you know, mysticism of any kind. Those are the exact, they tend to be the same people who um, are very skeptical of uh, simple systems, simple organisms, whatever, having cognition. And I think those two views are actually incompatible because if you don't believe in magic it, then and you take evolution seriously, then you have to ask whatever cognitive uh, properties human beings have, they had to have come from somewhere, so it's it's I, you know I I think thinking of agency as this magical thing that somehow appears in 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 humans, maybe higher you know primates, but but everything else is sort of as if cognition. I think that's completely incompatible with a modern view of of evolution and uh, and just just you know science in general. I think we have to look at what the primitive version of these uh, complex capacities are. So yeah. so teleophobia, right? So so to get into that teleophobia, I think is. This uh, this real uh, desire not to make a particular kind of mistake, and the mistake is not to attribute uh, too much agency to systems. And so, if you ask the question, you know, how does a thermos know whether to keep something hot or cold? Right? that, that is a that is a bad that's a bad question. <laughs> and, and, the re- and, and the reason right and the reason it's a bad question is not because there's anything wrong with asking how things know things. It's simply that um, th- that we now know that that kind of question gets you absolutely nowhere. As far as being able to predict and explain what a thermos does over and above the the much the much more simple thermodynamics explanation, right? So so you gain nothing at that at that point. The problem is that that people tend to really uh, kind of emphasize that type of error, but the, the but 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 they tend to ignore the other the other type of error, which is ex- equally bad. Type if...
1: two error, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where where what you're doing is is you, you you leave so much on the table if you then have a system that is in fact a complex agent. And you insist on treating it uh, with a with a much much too simple uh, mechanist uh, kind of set of models. You're, you're giving up a lot, and, and it's just as bad. So, so our goal, I think, is to get it is to get it right. And 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 for me, it's an engineering problem. It's not philosophy. It's not you know can can it be or can't it be? The question is what's the best metaphor to help you do your science?
0: Yeah. You used a a great example. I mean, really, we want to drive this home. We've talked to Beta Agency in a couple of shows. We have other shows coming out of Beta Agency. I think Art and I are are fans of the the concept. But let's really make sure that we're uh, driving this home for, for everybody. If you put a ball, this is your example. If you put a ball and a mouse on the top of the hill, you get very different outcomes. Can you can you walk through that in the context of, of agency?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's
0: again, it's this idea that uh, that that
2: and, and and I'm sure many people will will disagree with this, but my view is that um, questions of agency are not to be settled by philosophy. There's only so much you can do sitting back in a chair and sort of pondering these things. The real hmm. question about agency is an empirical, experimental question, and. And Dan actually, um, you know, I, I read this years ago in, in his book, Dan's, Dan's intentional stance is this idea that you should attribute exactly that level of, you know, he was talking about consciousness and other things, which I'm sort of avoiding for the time being. But as far as agency, you know, the idea is, is exactly the right amount that you should attribute to the system to optimally predict and control. I mean, hmm. it's it's a it's a totally engineering thing. It makes no mm-hmm. assumptions up up front about how much you know how surprised you're going to be if it turns out, wow, I really need a model with tons of agency to properly understand the system. Well, mm-hmm. then there you go. Now now you've learned something new. So mm-hmm. you know, completely fine with that. And of course, there are many examples in science that go the other way around, where people thought that back in the day that uh, you know objects the rocks fell to the earth because they really liked being you know down as close to the earth, the earth as possible. Okay, that didn't really get us anywhere. So so to me it's a it's a total engineering task. And so with the, the thing with the with the with the ball and the mouse on top of a hill is just an example of this you know if you've got a if you got a ball at the top of a hill you can use equations that will tell you what it's going to do and those equations have almost no reference whatsoever to information processing to memory to learning to preferences you don't need any of that you have a much simpler model that does pretty much everything you want to do to predict what that system is going to do if Mm -hmm. you've got a mouse at the top of a hill newton's equations about what what it's going to do if it were to roll down the gravity well are unless the mouse is dead are almost useless because, because now if you really want to understand what that system is going to do or, or modify it and make the mouse go somewhere else, you, you have no, no, no hope other than through a model that takes seriously what that system actually is. And it's a system with preferences, with memories, with all kinds of internal states that are going to uh, determine what happens later on.
0: Would all those things roll up into what you called an agenda? I mean, it, it, is that the agenda? The mouse has an agenda. The ball doesn't have an agenda.
2: So, so I'm going to I'm going to push back against against this this binary um, kind of kind of view. And I'm going <laughs> <Fair> to say <enough. laughs> I'm going to say right. I'm going to say it's it's not that the ball doesn't have an agenda. So there are these um, kind of the least action principles and so on that that suggest that. It, it, it does. It's just an extremely modest agenda. So the agenda <laughs> that, that, that the ball has is very, very basic. Maybe the most basic there is. I don't know if there's anything simpler than that. The agenda is to minimize free energy.
1: Fall down a gravity well. It's <laughs> yeah. just
2: going to fall down a gravity well. It is the, probably the smallest, you know, kind of feeblest agenda you could possibly have. The mouse has all sorts of rich agendas. Now, it doesn't have one that lasts, that looks years into the future and, you know, has hopes and dreams about the fate of the world and things like this. <laughs> but it does have an agenda that was modified by prior experience, maybe. And it has an agenda that uh, maybe looks forward a little bit uh, in, in in terms of anticipation. And it has preferences. and has all kinds of other things that you're going to need if you have any hope of prediction and control. <laughs>
1: Another aspect of this that uh, I think is quite powerful is your idea about levels at which agency happens. And, and um, so if we think of like humans, myself, I'm, I'm a collection of organs and a collection of cells. And as you ar- argue in the article, those things also have agency, right? So there's sort of agency... Happening at different levels at the same time. So, so how do how do cells inside a multicellular organism have have agency?
2: Yeah. Um, so, so, so two two points there. The the first is that yeah, we we are a collection of subunits of all, and, and in fact, all cognitive. The one thing that's important to realize is all all cognitive beings are in fact collections of parts. There's no such thing as this sort of single monadic sort of diamond. That's a that's a cognitive you know creature. Everything is made of parts. And, and in general, those individual parts don't have the cognition of the larger system. And so, so the big thing, of course, is this many into one um, kind, of, uh, kind of big, deep question. You know, how, how do individual subunits get together and form um, agendas that don't belong to any of the individual pieces? But in the case of a complex organism, there are many, many layers of these things and they all interpenetrate and they all compete and cooperate with each other. So for example, uh, molecular networks, you know, we just put out a paper um, a couple of months ago, and, and other people have as well, showing that molecular networks can do a kind of learning. And so they, they are modified by their experience, even without rewiring. So we're talking about, you know, not, not, not changing the network, but just purely dynamical systems kind of stuff. Cells, which used to be unicellular organisms, which absolutely have agendas, you know, amoebas and, and paramecia and things like this. And so, so these cells are now working together. So they have local single cell level agendas, metabolic and, and so on but then they're part of much bigger units that also have interesting agendas for example a collection of cells that is trying to regenerate a salamander limb and so so you keep amputating that limb and they will keep working together to to achieve that goal and then they stop when it's achieved you know this is one of the most profound things in regenerative biology is that it ever stops you know Mm -hmm. that when a when a correct salamander limb is uh is is built the, the collective recognizes this and ceases its activity one of the most incredible aspects of biology so there's agendas all up and down. Um, as we we, we know, uh, organs compete with each other, in, even in the same body. So they compete for informational molecules. They compete for metabolic resources. So it's it's this kind of it's this kind of society of of agents that uh, that that is that's very complex and multi level.
1: Yeah, how are those um, agendas of all those different levels aligned or not aligned? Uh, you know, how how do the agendas and the agency of the higher levels emerge from the actions of the lower levels? Are are there are there sort of general rules about how that happens?
2: Well, I think the only general rule is that evolution exploits both the competitive and cooperative nature of these things to to to, uh, try to make the most adaptive um, creatures possible. I think that's the only general rule there is. Now, now underneath that, there are there are a couple of specific things that are interesting. So, so one idea that um, I've been playing around with lately is this this idea that a lot of the things living systems do are problem solving. In, in various virtual spaces. So for example, we are, we're all familiar with three-dimensional space. So, so animals can, can navigate 3D space and solve various various problems, fine. But there are also uh, spaces. So, so for example, when um, an, an organism has to rearrange its face from an from a abnormal starting configuration to a normal configuration, that's a, that's a journey through space, the space of all possible configurations of its anatomy that it needs to undertake. And there are other spaces, there's transcriptional space, which genes do I need to turn on and off at any given time to optimize for whatever, there are physiological spaces. So in all of these spaces, the system is constantly trying to get from wherever it is now to the best place it can. And the sophistication of the agent is is basically given by how, how Byzantine a, a set of paths can this agent traverse, right? For example, can it step away from the most direct line to where it's trying to go if that's in fact going to long-term get it to a better, to a better outcome, right? So very sophisticated mm-hmm. agents can do this. Dumb agents really can't. So, so if you look at it that way, and there, the, 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 that evolution basically reuses the same tricks to navigate these spaces. And I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the, the earliest, you can imagine the earliest forms of life, we're, we're solving metabolic search problems, right? And then you got morphospace as as organisms have to have to shape themselves, and then um, behavioral space because then you started to move and to be able to get around. And so, I think evolution just pivots. And so so that's kind of a general thing is that it pivots certain strategies like run and tumble and these various things, but they work in all kinds of uh, spaces, not just in three dimensional physical space.
0: Oh, wow, there's so many so many things going on there. Let me let me ask a a different question. Um, back to the, you know, sort of agency side of things, would, would it be fair to say that organelles and certain molecules have agency as well? Or do we, should we be drawing the, drawing the line to, I mean, not to dichotomize, but should we be drawing the line at cells?
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, I hate drawing lines, um, I, you know, but, but individual molecules, I don't know how much you, how much traction you get from, from uh, using agent-based models with, uh, with molecules, although although there may well be examples of this that I don't know. For organelles, I think it's probably quite reasonable. I mean, certainly, for example, mitochondria, right, as, as far as I know, used to be its own, its own organism at some point. Um, I would not at all be surprised if there were good stories to tell about the, the goals of a mitochondrion and, and in which cases they align with versus uh, compete with the goals of the cell that it lives in. It, uh, that seems perfectly reasonable. I think overall, the one thing I forgot to sort of say in response to the previous question, which is relevant here, is that I think one thing that larger agents do is that they distort the option space for their subunits. Mm-hmm. So that from the from the local sort of myopic perspective of the subunit, all it looks like is you're falling down to gravity. Well, you don't really have a, much of a choice about what you're doing. It's pretty obvious what the next step is. You're just, you're just sort of doing your local thing. But but what, what you don't know is that uh, there's a larger scale agent that deformed that space for you such that when you do your inevitable thing, it actually feeds the agenda of the higher level subunit. Each of these, each of these layers is solving problems in, in a space. And part, part, of, part of doing that is distorting the option space for your, for your own subunits to make it such that what they have to inevitably do are things that are good
1: for you. That that almost sounds like a, a kind of joint control, right? So you have sort of you know bottom up processes. You're connecting agents at a lower level to to affect higher level agency, but then those higher level agents are exerting top down control on the lower agents at the same time. Is that a reasonable summary of what you said?
0: Yep, I All think right. that's I think that's yeah. very compatible. So in organisms with brains, and I mean it's sort of the the pinnacle to to again simplify <laughs> the pinnacle of um, centralized control. I mean, are, are those is that a reasonable way to think about it, or how do we think about the control from higher levels of lower levels in in organisms that, that don't really have brains? Or should we always think about the brain as the dominant? When an organism has a brain, it's the kind of piece that that it we need to attend to.
2: Well, uh, a couple things. First, first of all, um, I'm not even sure. You know, we talk about centralized control, and that is in the eye of the beholder. So, if you if you take a look at the scale of the whole organism. You know, you sort of look at this elephant and, and you say, "Okay, I, clearly there's, a, there's centralized control because there's a much smaller piece of that elephant that seems to be driving all this stuff that it's doing." But then you zoom into that and you say, "What centralized control? This is a massive thing. There is no one magic little diamond in there where everything sort of comes together and, and mm-hmm. is somehow mystically integrated. It's it's still a highly distributed system. So mm-hmm. so it's it's very relative. You know what you mean by centralized control um, with respect to whether." whether it's, it becomes the dominant force in settling certain kinds of problems. So, for example, in behavior that it tends to be dominant. But if we're talking about things like morphogenesis, um, generally speaking, no. So, so most uh, remodeling and patterning takes place perfectly well without a brain. Not all. There are some things that are absolutely brain dependent, but usually not. So, so plenty of regeneration and remodeling and, and those kind of problems can be solved having nothing to do with the brain. Um, metabolics and, and transcriptional spaces are generally uh, so, you know solved without um, without a brain so it depends which of the many things that living systems do you're interested in
0: hmm. so what do we f- I mean how should we think about the brain then if it's large role is to to coordinate behavior and sophisticated behavior as you alluded to, just a little while ago, is something that's much more recent. I mean, big organisms, the complexity of their behavior relative to to you know single cell organisms. How do we think about the role of the brain? If, if we don't consider it to be the diamond in the center of the system, how, how do we think about it? I mean, is it just another point of uh, mechanism coordination or how should we think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, not to diminish, uh, clearly not to diminish the role of brains. I mean, so, so brains are fantastic. Evolution loves them because they provide, uh, uh, they provide something very important. Um, the first thing I think, they, the most obvious thing I think they provide is, is, is speed. So, so one of the things that happen evolutionarily, apparently, is that uh, developmental bioelectric mechanisms. So, so in fact, all cells do the kinds of things that brains do in terms of passing electric uh, signals to each other moving neurotransmitters about all of these kinds of things all, all cells do this and, and and you know what 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 i think evolution did was to uh when it when it pivoted to to add behavioral control in addition to a morphogenetic control is that it developed this cell type which simply allows all of this to happen that much faster because if you're running around and you know trying to eat your prey and not get eaten speed becomes becomes very important and so a lot of the same things that take days or, or, or you know, or hours in, in developmental contexts are in millisecond time scale in the brain, but they're fundamentally the same processes. They mm-hmm. really are very, very simple. similar, and so, so I think I think the first and most obvious thing: the brains and neural, nervous systems gives you the speed. But obviously, there are these major mm, kind of transitions in evolution where the architecture of the brain uh, evolved to give you. Uh, additional capacities in you know, a language and, and, and other things that, that I think non-neural um, collectives don't do. They're clearly important architectural innovations in having a brain.
1: I like very much your aversion to sort of non-binary thinking here with respect to, to agency and cognition and these things we've been talking about. But I wanna, wanna ask one more binary question and that is, um, it, it feels like agency must have been invented at some point in evolution there, there must've been living things perhaps that had agency that did not have agency before it was invented. Do you, do you think that's the case or is agency just such a fundamental part of, of life that it would have originated at the very beginning?
2: Yeah, boy, that's a good question. Um, I find it very hard to imagine, uh, any living thing without some degree of agency. And then again, this is, this is my unwillingness to, to, to make this a binary um, category. Uh, It's possible that in our efforts to make synthetic life, I mean, and I'm talking from scratch, right? The people who are working on um, origin of life work, maybe it's possible to produce something that we would recognize as life, but yet give it uh, zero agency, you know, I I estimate. I find find it very hard to imagine how that would work, but I'm not gonna say it's impossible. I, I think actually agency goes, all the way down, and I think here is probably—I'm guessing this is probably where where I, I differ a little bit from, from Dan's view on this. Not, not in the um, sense of of uh, this 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 panpsychist idea that you know all the rocks are sitting there having deep hopes and dreams, and we just don't know about it. Not <laughs> not not quite that. But 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 if you scale down, so you know if you scale down the uh, the, the complexity. Of the body, so you go from a, from an animal down to a simple rock or a chemical system or something. You should also remember to scale down the expectation of agency. So not that rocks are having these complex inner lives, but if you do scale down the the expectation of agency, maybe all the way down to the particle level, there is some kind of thing that you might call a non-zero amount of agency. So so just just to give you an example, and this is you know this is extremely of course controversial and so on, but. If I had to, if I had to invent, if somebody said to me, uh, invent what, what properties would agency have to have uh, for, for the, for the smallest possible thing? Like what's the most minimal amount of agency? I would say, well, it it would have to do two things. It would, it would have to be hard to predict. In other words, they would have to have some degree of indeterminism and it would be able to, um, it would be able to uh, uh, fall down various kinds of uh, wells in its state space. And I think we have that even for particles, right? So, so we have these least action models that tell you that um, if you want to know how light will traverse a very complex path, you can you can follow all of Maxwell's equations through the lenses and all of that. Or you can just assume that the light wants to get there as fast as possible. And in fact, you get the right answer from doing that, right? That's an old example. And, mm-hmm. and of course, we have quantum indeterminacy. So I, I'm, I'm by no means any expert on, on physics, but th- those just happen to be the exact two things that I would pick for uh, the most minimal notion of agency. So okay, if, that's, cool. if that's the case, if, if agency is a continuum and you, you can ask what is the, you know, the tiniest bit, I would say it's already there from- from
1: Even before life.
2: I would think so, that, yeah. you know, that even before things we would recognize as life. So I, I,
1: I don't think there's a bright line. That, Binary line avoided. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, let's, let's turn a little bit to the, the power of agency. And I'm, just a quick question before we get to some other things coming out of the the points that you're making just now, Mike. Is it even reasonable to think about the amount of diversity that we have on this planet right now ever evolving without agency? I mean, if by some means we could eliminate a control agency, would we end up, could we end up with the same degree of biodiversity?
2: Well, um, When I started thinking about that question, the first thing I thought was that the question fundamentally can't be answered because we're kind of assuming uh, an impossibility from the outgo. I mean, I just don't see how you. I I just don't see how you do any of the thing, you know, development or 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 any of these things without some degree of agency. However, I do I do think we can say something something interesting about that. we can imagine uh, cranking the agency down as far as we possibly can, and ask the question: What effects would that have on evolution? And I think that what it would really do is uh, make evolution incredibly slow and much less powerful. I mean, go back to um, all the way uh, when I when I first I, I was a you know, computer scientist doing engineering, and and I first kind of came across this this notion of of evolution as as Classically um, defined, and you, I think all of us who who come across this for the first time have to have this thought: there is no way in hell that is going to work because we've all we've all made complex systems, right? Those of us who have written code, and now somebody says to us uh, well, you can make some random changes to these things. And then, and then eventually you'll find something that works. Are you kidding? Like how, I mean, (laughs) I mean, maybe, you know, in, 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 in you know, in, in, in a trillion years, you'll find something, but so, so, right. So we all, and then, and then sort of slowly we, um, we kind of get over this and we sort of assume, well, it's all here. So it must've you know, it must've happened. Um, and so, so I think, I think what, what this multi-scale, uh, I I call it multi-scale competency. I think what it does is it Massively uh, boosts evolvability, meaning that hmm. within the amount of time that we have, it's, it actually becomes plausible that some of this stuff would be discovered. And here's here's what I mean by that. Um, consider a very simple example that we showed in our lab a few years ago. Uh, if you, you you take a tadpole, and you know for millions of years this thing evolved with two eyes right in front of the head, and the, everything is connects up correctly and this behavior and learning and all that visual learning and all that. And so. We can make, overnight, we can make tadpoles where there's no eyes in the head, the eye is on the tail. And it turns out that those animals can see perfectly well out of those eyes. So those eyes make one spinal cord, one, uh, sorry, one optic nerve. The optic nerve um, tries to find the spinal cord. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And it sort of passes all of its data up to the spinal cord. That somehow makes its way to the brain. And no problem. These guys can learn almost as well as wild type animals. Now that degree of plasticity and competency, so, so that eye primordium is able to, first of all, make an eye in a really weird location, right in the middle of muscle and, and, and all this right. other stuff. And B, it knows how to put out its optic nerve and hook it up to the closest, you know, sort of information highway that it can find, which is the, the spinal cord. And then everything works from there. Imagine how amazing that is for evolvability, because that means that if you suddenly have this mutation that and and, mo- and keep in mind, most mutations are highly pleiotropic, so they do all kinds of different things at once, right? So you have this mutation, and let's say it helps you out in some way. So it's ad- it's got one feature that's adaptive that raises fitness, but it but but it also happens to put your eyes in a funny location, right? If there wasn't this multi-scale competency, the odds of you surviving that would be very little because even though you might have some positive feature from that mutation, now your eyes don't work and, and, mm-hmm. and everything else has gone to heck and, and you know, your overall fitness is terrible. The fact that a lot of these um, body agendas are able to be pursued, even though things are changing, right? That's, that's a nice thing about agendas as a, as a term is because agenda is flexible and agenda isn't a rote step-by-step, I do yeah. this no matter what and if everything's wrong, I'm just going to keep doing it and the end result is going to be terrible. An agenda is something that you can pursue flexibly even when stuff around you is changing. So the fact that, that organ primordium um, and various other things can, can change and, and rearrange and still do what they need to do despite local changes means that mutations are far less likely to be deleterious. It means you can tolerate all kinds of mutations because stuff will still tend to get its job done more or less. And that means that evolution can go much faster uh, than otherwise. So I think if it were possible to reduce the amount of competency uh, I think what that would do is, is just really make the, uh, the fitness landscape extremely jagged and we would not in any reasonable time frame, we wouldn't be able to evolve anything of value.
1: Uh, I want to switch now a little bit and talk about a, another idea that you bring up in the article about anthropomorphizing. And you you quoted Sidney Morgan-Besser, who was questioning B.F. Skinner. Uh, Morgan-Besser said, you think we shouldn't anthropomorphize people? So why did he ask Skinner that? And and what's the parallel between sort of anthropomorphizing people and other things in in biology, including agency,
2: I I think I think this gets back to our to our initial discussion about uh, teleophobia. So so when people say to me, you know, you're anthropomorphizing this or that process, my my take on this is there's no such thing as anthropomorphizing because we are not magic, right? What what they mean is what what people intuitively mean when they say is is this stuff is. I know that I have true, you know, uh, true beliefs and true opinions and, and true memories and whatever. And what you're doing is you're, you're taking things that don't have this magical property and you're talking as if they do. Now, now that would be bad, right? That that sounds like a bad thing to do except that there is no such magic thing. We don't whatever it is that we have many
1: other things have yeah
2: right and, and it, it, it's, it's inevitable that other things must have it to some degree or other. They may be you know less or more or whatever. But I think it's untenable nowadays to think that um, there is this this, this magical anthropomorphizing. The, the, so so I take this whole um, project as not trying to anthropomorphize other kinds of systems, it's to demystify, what it is that, that, that humans do and try to see how that can help us understand all these other kinds of systems to various degrees. And like Mm -hmm. I said, the the key, the key is twofold. The, the, the the first thing is that to even get off the ground, you have to scale down both sides of the equation. So if you go from humans to uh, let's say, I don't know, single cells or plants or whatever, you've scaled down the complexity of the creature, you've got to scale your expectations as well, right? If, if, you're, if you're thinking that, you know, these things are sitting there b- b- planning what happens when the, you know, when, when the sun burns out, how we're gonna go on, they're not. It's, you have to scale your expectations on both, both sides of things. But the bigger, the bigger thing is that it has to, you have to say how it's going to en- enrich your science. Meaning, does it give you new experiments that you can do? Does it help prediction? Does it help control? Is there something practical that you're going to gain with one particular model than another. You know, people say, you know, oh, you're anthropomorphizing. That's just a metaphor. I mean, everything's just a metaphor. Nothing's really anything. <laughs> there are no <laughs> spherical cows, right? You know, pathways and and lock and key proteins. And all, all this stuff. All of these are metaphors. The question mm-hmm. is, how good is your metaphor, right? What does it do for you? Yeah.
0: My I think my favorite part of this article is is the um, you know, in terms of why we why should why we should care, why it matters, is the the points that you brought up about the impending genetic winter. Can you can you tell us about the example of putting the model car kit into a pot of hot water, and what happens next?
2: Yeah, um, that's that's uh, th- that's mostly that 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 one was mostly Dan's as far as the model car kit. So I might I might let him um, you know kind of tell his story on that, but I can talk about the the genetics winter and what I think is is going on here. So. It's kind of a, a, a flashback to this, this AI winter, right? That, that, that we had for some decades, where basically there was a very promising field that got shut down for a while. And I think, I think the, what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is this: people have this, this feeling that the problem, that, that all the problems that we're interested in, in let's say, biomedicine, right? So, so um, traumatic injury, birth defects, cancer, aging, degenerative disease, all, all these things. That what we need to do is to be able to edit the genome. Okay, that, that's kind of the, the the takeaway that a lot of a lot of press pieces have, have been putting out. And so a lot of people are working on editing the genome. Now, don't get me wrong, genetics is amazing. It's incredibly useful. Editing the genome is incredibly useful. All of that stuff is great. However, uh, you have to keep in mind that beyond some low-hanging fruit. So so imagine in the next ten years we solve two, two things. We're, we're going to solve um, genome editing. So somebody will will have come up with a nice clean way of making ge- genetic edits exactly where you want it and nowhere else for
1: perfect editing
2: <laughs> yeah 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 for, forget all that let's say let's say you get totally perfect editing and let's say and and, and by the way let's also say that stem cell biology gets solved so that from, from a stem cell you can get any other single cell type that you want okay so now you, so so now you have all this and so now that means that you're going to solve some really nice low hanging fruit so so single single gene diseases of which there are some um, and single cell diseases, you know, Parkinson's, maybe things like that. Um, but then, then you're going to reach uh, the much, much deeper question okay, somebody's missing their hand. Let's say there was an accident or birth defect or, you know, whatever, uh, or an eye. And, and now what? Because the point isn't to be able to edit the genome cleanly. The point is, what in the world would you edit? So if you don't, be- you know, if, if we don't have a good account of, uh, morphogenetic agency and competency if we don't have a reverse engineering of this kind of software of life that enables it to have modularity and so on, you're talking about micromanaging at the molecular level all of the steps that go on to making a complex organ. That is not going to happen, never mind our <laughs> lifetime. you know I don't know how many years it's going to be before that's even feasible if it even is at all feasible, that kind of micromanagement. So what I'm talking about this genomics winter is simply that if we pay all of the attention to, uh, the tools, meaning how are we going to make the changes, we're going to run into this issue. We have no idea what changes to make for mm-hmm. these kind of complex outcomes. And that's why I think it's not, well, partly because, because it's not a direct mapping from DNA to, um, to, you know, people talk about, oh, a gene for this and a gene for that. There are very few genes for, you know, specific features, right? Everything else is a massively complex journey from, from the genes to whatever. So, so that's that's what I think is important about the, that genomics winter is that if we don't pay attention to the uh, to the to, to deconstructing this agency so we can take advantage of it, um, there's going to be we're going to plateau for for a long
1: time. Yeah, we just recently talked to Walter Isaacson about his his new book, uh, The Codebreaker, which is about Jennifer Doudna and the race to discover CRISPR-Cas9 and Nobel Prize, et cetera. Is it your sense that these people involved in CRISPR are confronting this problem and and engaging with it in a in a profound way? I mean, I, I, I sense I got from his book and from you know Walter himself is there's a lot of optimism about the potential power of being able to edit edit genomes in in a way that you just described is not working. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, let's let's be clear. I, I you know I, I I think all of these advances are incredibly exciting and important. Um, I don't think. You know, uh, I don't I don't think there's any way to, to belittle how important these these types of advances are. But uh, to my knowledge, no, no, people are not really grappling with this issue yet. And, and you know, it, it's there, there are a lot of low hanging fruit to be to be picked here um, and, and, you know, positive things to be done with the kinds of things that everybody's focused on. Um, but no, I actually don't think the field as a whole has uh, has, has grappled with a bigger picture here yet.
0: In terms of grappling, I mean, that, let's, let's turn to that. How, how are we gonna grapple? It's, it's all fine to be you know critical, but what, how, what are we gonna offer that, that's better? You, in the article, you and Dan refer to um, a book called Vision by David Marr. And what he advocated for, and I think is something like where you're coming from, is to distinguish the computational level and its related informational processes in, in biology. What did he mean and, and how are we gonna use that to, to make progress?
2: Yeah, so I think, I think to make progress, there's a couple of, a few things that can be done. One thing is that relates to, uh, to, to David Maher's point, and I, I find him very inspirational, and, and his views uh, were, were um, kind of uh, central to, to the kinds of things I'm talking about. I think, I think it, 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 d- despite the sort of um, fashionability nowadays to try and make harsh distinctions between biology and computation, and, and people will often say, ah, oh, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of uh, na- naive to think of living things as computers and, and, and Josh Bongart and I just put out a kind of a paper on that. But, but aside, from the, aside from the trivial comparisons, many of which in fact don't work, that the deeper issue of uh, using um, the kinds of deep lessons that computer science has learned about the world, not about computers, but about computation itself, right? Uh, somebody, I forget whose quote it was, but somebody said, you know, computer science is no more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes. So <laughs> it's it's, and I think it's very deep. It's not the point that living things are like any of the computers we see today. It's the point that people always people also say, well, it's, uh, you know, it's inevitable to try and make uh, analogies based on the dominant technology of the day. So it used to be that, you know, the brains were uh, were, were miniature steam, uh, you know, uh, kind of apparatus and so on sort of, it's not as bad as people say, because yes, of course, we're not steam engines, but thermodynamics, which was discovered because of that, is in fact central to biology, right? Mm -hmm. So these kind of deep, deep lessons in computer science has learned some very deep lessons that I think is really important to apply to uh, in biology, this computational layer of asking different different uh, it, it's an important part of ferreting out these these agendas because asking what does it measure what does it what kinds of uh, comparisons does it do with what what kind of memory does it have uh, which you know a, a really deep aspect in, in computer science is substrate independence it's the fact that you can swap out you know you can do com- you can do computation and run algorithms on as Dan likes to say computers made of beer cans and string right it doesn't have to be silicon it doesn't so, so, so in biology, asking these questions all the time, okay, how much of what I'm looking at is the molecular level is actually critical, right? We, we tell these stories about this gene binds to that gene. Yeah, okay, but, but how much of that is actually critical to what this thing is doing? What is it computing? What is it trying to, what information is it passing? What are the natural boundaries? So and I think all of, those, all of those are really important. That's the kind of stuff I think um, David Marr was talking about. There, the, the other thing I wanna talk about with respect to your question of what to do next is uh i think and this is this is something that um we are doing in my lab and and other people have have addressed from different perspectives is um we really have to get beyond natural model systems and into synthetic life forms and the reason is I, I i think they obscure a lot of profound questions so for example when you look at a particular you know, let's say you're looking at a, a zebrafish and you say, wow, it, how, well, how come it has vision in a particular wavelength s- span? And how come it has, you, you know, gills and how come it has, you, you know, a particular kind of, uh, of fins and all that? The, the answer to these questions is always the same. Well, because for millions of years, there has been this, this pressure, you know, selection pressure to, to, to be a particular kind of shape. Okay. So one of the things that we can do now is create novel organisms from cells. So I'm not talking about origin of life kind of stuff, but in a dish in 24 to 48 hours that look nothing like what the, and by the way, wild type cells. So, so, so they look nothing like what the, what the genomic default of, of that organism is. And this happens immediately. This happens in front of your eyes without a lengthy, uh, a lengthy set of um, evolutionary pressures. And so, so it does a couple of things. First of all, it, it gets you beyond these easy uh, sort of almost tautological explanations. For, well, whatever features it has, those are the features that got selected. Yeah, but what features got selected Well, the ones it has. So it, you know, it gets you beyond all of that. And it, gets you, it, it forces you to ask this question, yeah, in a in space of 48 hours, where did these agendas come from? So there are morphological agendas that have to do with how this thing self-assembles a particular kind of body. It has uh, behavioral agendas. It has specific, specific kinds of behaviors. Where did all that come from? If it didn't get shaped by evolution over, over eons, um, what you know, what is the source of these things and the plasticity of the biological hardware that can do, that can do this? So I think it it really um, to understand agency, we have to use these kind of um, novel model systems that strip away. All the things that were hiding uh, this from us, and really confront this deep question that we actually don't understand how cellular collectives make decisions t- towards specific outcomes. Right? The fact that that acorns make oak trees all of the time, and you know, and, and zebrafish eggs make zebrafish all of the time, really obscures the fact that actually they can make other things. And why don't they make these other things is 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 really important. And um, I'll, I'll give you a very simple. I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, aside from, in fact, this has, been, this has been happening for many years, people make chimeras, people make chimeric animals. So you can take cells from, from two very different species, you can mush them together during embryogenesis, you get some, some kind of in-between thing. So aside from the fact that that blows up a lot of assumptions, you right, if, if they're genomically really diverse in terms of cooperation and genetic relatedness during cooperation and how important that is, you know, there's a lot of things that get blown up here. But one of the key things is you might ask yourself, uh, well, what's the outcome gonna be? So just as a simple example, here's, here's, here's one that we, uh, that we posed uh, in, in a couple of our papers. We, you take two planaria of these flatworms, that are two, two species that have different head shapes. So one has a flat head, one has a round head. And what these organisms do very reliably when you chop off their heads is they build heads of the correct shape and then they stop. So each of these things has cells that are able to get together to build a correct head shape of you know, one flat, one round. So now we take some cells from the flathead worm, we inject them into the body of the roundhead worm, we let them proliferate a little bit and get comfortable and move around and whatever, and then we amputate the head. And now you ask the simple question, what head shape do you get? You could imagine, right? There's all kinds of possibilities. You could, you could imagine that one shape is dominant to the other. You can, so you just get a flathead and that's it. You could imagine that you'll get some sort of in-between head shape, or you could imagine uh, that in fact, you will never get a finished head shape because neither set of cells will ever be happy about what the shape is. They'll just keep remodeling. It's kind of like there's an old Three Stooges episode where they're working on building something together, but each <laughs> one of them thinks they're building a different <laughs> thing, right? And they just keep, you know, they, they, the whole thing just keeps changing because nobody's ever happy about what the thing looks like. And so the important thing about this example is not the answer. The important thing is we, despite all the papers uh, in, in nature and science and so on, on the molecular pathways that uh, control stem cell differentiation in planaria, we have no models, zero, that make any prediction about this head shape. So, so we have absolutely no idea how collectives make, uh, make, make decisions. Because, and, and as a result of that, we have no explanatory power for how chimera collectives make decisions. And what, what, what that, in fact, is the, the, the fact that, wow, we, we really don't know how to predict this. What that highlights is that, never mind the chimera, you didn't know how to predict the planarian head shape in the first place, even just within one species, knowing that, that the complete genome of that worm, you had absolutely no idea what the head shape would be until you, until you actually saw one. That's mm-hmm. not obvious, right? If you ask even, yeah, I've, I've done talks for nine-year-olds, and you say to them, Here's an egg, and something comes out of that egg. What determines what what is, what that thing looks like? Everybody, the kids always say, "Oh, it's DNA." You know, in a certain sense, that's true, but but in a really profound sense, we have no idea. And, and right, and and I think I think these chimeric synthetic model systems are essential to understand this this, this business of, of agendas and to be able to exploit them for for biomedicine.
0: Yeah, I, you know, Mike. I mean, on some level. It- the clean experiments, there's a, there's a realm of inference to be gained from those studies that is unprecedented. And so I'm, I'm with you. But even though the, the circularity inherent to the argument that whatever we can study has some kind of legacy, I mean, that is, that is a really important part of most things biological. So how do you take the data sets that you generate from working with chimeras and think about it in the evolutionary or in sort of the, the, the natural context where any lineage is going to have a legacy. And however you know, the machinations of what's going to happen are going to be a function of whatever its its past experiences of you know, its ancestors had. It's going to be difficult to put those blocks back together or or how do you how are you thinking about putting those blocks back together later?
2: Yeah, well, it it is difficult and and you're absolutely right. The 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 history and the lineage is is incredibly important. And so what it what it highlights for us is how little we understand the plasticity of the situation. So you have some cells that have a lineage that were rewarded for building flatheads and you have uh, a lineage. And, and in fact, you can, you know, you can make chimeras from, you know, people, people have made chimeras across phyla to just extremely diverse. Um, what you really need to understand is, is the contribution of, the, of that lineage information to the plasticity of the collective. Because imagine two lineages evolving through time. Both of them have uh, evolutionary histories that have prepared each type of cell to work with, with similar beings to itself, right? So collectives of genetically identical cells. Now they come together. What you almost never see is the whole thing falls apart and now it's mush. You, you never see that. They, they always figure out a way to work together. And you get some kind of a thing out of it. And so what's incredible then is that those lineages, that, what that means is that evolution doesn't just give you a very narrowly defined machine that, that, that only knows how to work in its normal implementation. What it gives you is hardware that is incredibly plastic and that in novel circumstances, it's interoperable with other mm-hmm. kinds of hardware that had different selection paths. And so what that means is there's a whole new frontier for us to understand how do these, uh, how, how do these novel areas of morphospace, space, of behavioral space, how do they get explored by creatures that are now have been completely shifted off of the collective now, has been shifted off of its normal path even though the individual pieces of hardware do, of course, have a long history in, um, you know, in life, and this is this is what we're now looking at with these Xenobots, right? We, we've now have a couple of papers and, and lots more in the pipeline, making these new um, types of bodies out of standard frog cells. And so, of course, the frog cells have an evolutionary history, and they were selected to be good at sitting on the outside of a frog and keeping out the pathogens and nice things like that. But in a novel environment, they self-organize into a completely different thing that runs around and has different behaviors and does some, some amazing things that frogskin generally doesn't do, right? So, uh, yeah, this is this is a, an open frontier for sure.
0: One of your favorite, or one of my favorite specifics in this section that that you wrote about were these cognitive horizons. I mean, it's mapping of a different form. But what, what do you mean by that? And you know, without stealing your own uh, thunder and grant opportunities and things, how, how would you map the cognitive horizon of a, a species?
2: Yeah, so, so what I meant by the cognitive horizon is simply this. Um, we, were, we were at a conference, uh, a TWCF conference a couple of years ago, where we were charged with this very interesting idea to develop an option space for diverse intelligences. So if you open up the, the, the possible intelligences to, okay, we got some, some, you know, apes and some whales and some octopi and things like that, but you also have potential exobiological entities. You have electronic AIs, maybe you have, you know, who knows what else, right? Uh, what could be an option space where you could compare all of those things directly? Because looking to see if they're made of carbon and have the frontal cortex that's a terrible criterion right you you don't want that Uh, so so what is you know what could you have and so and so we started and lots of people had other good ideas this one was was my idea i started to think about what do all of these things have in common so if you have if you're if you're going to take a journey to some planet and and you're tasked with figuring out if something is a is a life form and and how much intelligence it, it might have what are you looking for if you can't say anything about what it's made of because i don't think that's what determines, you know, agency? So, so the thing, the thing that I came up with is um, what, what I think is central to all of this is the ability to have goals or agendas, and in particular, the size of your agenda. And what I mean by the size of your agenda, I mean what is the biggest goal, both in terms of space and in terms of time, that your cognitive system could possibly comprehend, right? So I have so so for this horizon, I basically drew it's a kind of diagram that looks like it looks like a space-time diagram from special relativity, right? It's you got you got three dimensions collapsed onto one axis, that's all of space. And then this is all of time. And then you draw some sort of a, a thing for every every kind of creature that you might encounter, you can draw some kind of boundary in the space to say what is it capable of working towards. So as a simple example, you know, if you're if you're a tick, then you don't have a whole lot of memory backwards. You don't have a whole lot of anticipation forwards. Uh, you, you, You really don't care about what's going on too far away from you. You're working on local butyrate concentration that you can smell, that's it, right? So your cognitive horizon might be really small. If you're a dog, you got some memory going backwards. You got a little bit of predictive power going forwards you are still never going to care about what's happening in the town over or what's going to happen 10 years from now you can't so, you, so your horizon you know has a different shape and it's a different size and whatever if you're a human your horizon might be e- enormous you know I, I, I've met people who are literally depressed by the fact that the sun is going to burn out at some point so like, like they're, <laughs> they're able to, you know they're able to comprehend or, or, the, or they're working towards you know world peace hundred years from now right like you know your horizon might be massive and for the maybe uniquely right in humans I don't, I don't know but maybe uniquely your horizon is actually bigger than your own um, uh, than your own lifespan. Yeah. So 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 that 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 may be a very uh, in, important uh, phase transition in this is continuum of agency. Because if you're you know if you're a goldfish and you have a whatever a, a, you know a 20 minute horizon. Your, your goal of surviving is totally achievable, right? It's, you're going to achieve your goal. If you're a human and your goal is survival to the end of your cognitive horizon, you know it's impossible. It's never going to happen because your cognitive horizon is bigger <laughs> than your, you know, whatever, 100-year lifespan. So that gives us all kinds of interesting psychological pressures and whatnot that some other creatures might not have.
1: Existential angst.
2: Yeah, to- <laughs> totally, totally. And I think, I think that, you know, I think it's a reasonable explanation for when does it show up. It shows up when your cognitive horizon is able to comprehend goals that you are too small to, to, to
1: implement yourself that's beautiful that's
2: beautiful there's all kinds of other interesting things that, that come out of it that that i explore in this in this one paper um, on that, that that talks about this horizon so uh so now the next question is how do you how do you practically measure it so the interesting thing is that there are there's nothing new about that aspect of it, it it's it, there are there are well-developed strategies to when somebody gives you a new animal a new model system to ask yourself what what does this thing like what are the preferences what can it You know, can it plan forward for how long does it have a memory? How far back does it stretch? What can it work towards? You know, this is now empirical. That's what I like about all this stuff is that it isn't really philosophy. It's a way to organize what your next experiment is gonna be. And your Mm -hmm. next experiment is to ask if if somebody gave you a new kind of frog or worm or whatever, you could absolutely go to the behavioral sciences textbook and find out what step by step all the things you need to ask about that question, about that model system. And if somebody hands you a kidney or a Xenobot or some other weird thing, you can do exactly the same thing. So can I train a a liver? Can I, can, you know, does skin have the ability to remember patterns of stimuli? How complex a pattern? All of those exact same questions uh, map, you know, you can, you can do all of those things.
0: This has been great, Mike. But we want to give you the chance to say anything else that we didn't bring up—that's you know burning for you or, or just other points to make. What else would you like to say?
2: Um, I, I want to say two things, uh, two quick things that have to do with, uh, with 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 ethics that that are related to the, some of the things we were talking about. The first thing is because because cognition is is a continuum. And we all know, let's, let's just look at the, from the perspective of, let's say, the legal system, it's a very practical thing. We all know what diminished capacity is, right? So we all know that, that, that sometimes when certain people get to court, they say, okay, this, this individual had diminished capacity, therefore they, were, they didn't have as much agency as one would in order to, to, to receive whatever outcomes of, of the trial are going to be it's important to think about the flip side of that is what does augmented capacity look like? So I find it incredibly unlikely that a standard typical human is the pinnacle of, of, of agent capacity, right? That can't be right. So, so therefore, what would happen? We we know how to reduce it and what that looks like all the way back to zero and and evolution. Let's roll it forward and ask, what would it mean for a living agent with human or otherwise to have 10 times the the capacity or or the agency of a typical human? Is it, what does that mean? Is it, does it mean that you know, they are fundamentally able to care about more things than we can? I mean, we certainly have a limit to how many things you can actually care about, right? It, you know, what would that look like, you know, the sort of uh, advanced individual. So I, so I think that that's just purely of, uh, in an in in intellectual sense, I think it's very important to think about where the far side of that continuum goes to. Whether or not we're ever gonna run into such agents, we don't know, but we may, and, and, and one needs to think about that. Um, the other thing I want to say is, is this, uh, I think, I think we, we are pretty inevitably, pretty soon going to be living in a world, and if not us, for sure, our children will, living in a world where we are um, surrounded by uh, unconventional agents. So, so, you know, Darwin had this phrase, I'm, I'm working on a, on a paper on this now, it's called endless forms, most beautiful. And he was sort of, you know, talking about a river bank and whatever. God, forget that. that, that is a tiny corner of option space. <laughs> we are going to be, we are going to see cyborgs and hybrids and, uh, you know, every kind of combination of biology, technology, artificial intelligence and software and hardware merges of, of living tissue with, with engineered, you know, all kinds of things. What that means is the older categories, things like what is a robot? What is a machine? How do we recognize agency? What is, what is something that was evolved versus designed? Does it matter uh, for these things? We have to start wrestling with this now because in the olden days, it was very easy to tell. Uh, and even then, of course, we made all kinds of mistakes with, with various kinds of humans and animals. We made all sorts of terrible mistakes. But, but, but generally speaking, you could do this. You would sort of knock on something. And if you hear a metallic sound, you would say, oh, yeah, you can do whatever you want with this. <laughs> and if it was squishy and, you know, sort of warm and furry, you would say, you, if, if you do certain things with this, you're going to jail, right? You, you, you have to be nice to this one. It's a horse or, a, you know, a dog, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that was easy because, because you could rely on two things. You could rely on the thing it's made, what it's made of, and you could rely on an origin story. You could say, well, this thing evolved and this thing was created in the lab and that makes all the difference. Those categories are gone. I think even now these categories are no good and they're absolutely going to be no good going forward. So when you can't, and, and I think this, this matches um, you know, kind of uh, the progression of our thought in, in society where you really can't make a decision about what you owe someone based on where they came from or what they look like, right? We kind of buy into that. So we have to start developing an ethics, uh, a system of ethics that doesn't uh, rely on these these ancient categories because they're no good anymore. You know, I often, when I talk to my students, I say, okay, look, you got two, two, two houses. One house has, a, has a, a human that has 10% of their brain is this like Im- electronic implant by which they run their vacuum cleaner and their wheelchair and various other things. And then mm-hmm. you have a house next door and that one has a Roomba, which is 90% robot, but it's got some human cells there that help it recognize faces and whatnot. And Right, so that's ninety ten. This is ten ninety, and every place in between is a potential thing that can exist and be an agent. We don't have any, uh, you know, um, ethical models to start to think about this. And right. the kind of stuff that people are talking about, where, you know, where, where most bioethics has focused is, you know, people argue human brain organoids well don't worry they're not enough like human brains for us to worry about them or some people say i oh, no, they're they're enough like human brains you should worry about them that isn't the question at all never mind if they're like human brains human brains forget that the question mm-hmm. is what else are they what, what what else are they like and what else are we going to have that doesn't look anything like human brains and yet we have moral responsibility to it so so opening up that option space of bodies and the different kinds of minds that they can house is going to you know just blow up these old categories that we have right to start
0: now Well, great. Hey, thank you so much. This was really fantastic. Uh, We'll see about part three in the not too distant future. (laughs) Cool.
2: Thanks very much, guys. Great discussion.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And
1: don't forget your tiny summer homework. Tell a friend about us. Mention us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to spread the word.
0: For the latest Big Biology news, follow us on social media. We especially encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook, where you can discuss the episodes with other fans, create memes, and interact with a big biology team.
1: On the next episode, we talked to Konstantin Chumakov and Robert Gallo about their idea to use LAVs, live attenuated vaccines, to intervene in the prevention of COVID and other novel infections.
0: LAVs like those that protect against tuberculosis, polio, and other infections might also, in effect, perturb the innate immune system and protect against non-target infections, including SARS-CoV-2.
1: In a recent article in PNAS, they summarized these new ideas and how the use of these cheap and common vaccines could be a way to slow the spread of novel infections.
0: And bats are containing it by innate immunity. Low level, low level, so you don't get inflammation, constitutively expressed. So I'm thinking about all these things, and I, you know, why aren't we thinking this way right now? And then came in the global virus network conversations with Constantine, and I would heard him before, but this time, I I was really listening to those old stories he had, and I realized there is a field there. And before we go, we want to tell you about a podcast you might like, I Know Dino. We're in the golden age for dinosaur discoveries. A new dinosaur is discovered and named nearly every week. And I Know Dino is the only podcast that covers every new dinosaur discovery.
1: After six years of production, I Know Dino is the world's largest dinosaur podcast. I know dino is made by adults for adults, but they keep it clean so kids can listen too.
0: Not only do Sabrina and Garrett cover new discoveries, they also promote critical thinking when new claims are presented about dinosaurs previous topics have included how close are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to our current understanding what did Spinosaurus use its sail for did T-Rex really have short useless arms was Velociraptor small and feathered did Dilophosaurus spit venom what can
1: fossilized gut contents tell us about dinosaur diets
0: check them out wherever you get your podcast. again the podcast is I Know Dino
1: thanks to Steve Lane for managing our website Dana Baxter Ajikia Dahaki and Jordan Greer for managing our social media channels and helping to produce the podcast and thanks to Ruth Demery for producing the episode
0: Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.